Cinderella, season three. Season three. Beginning is... of season three. This is going to be a good season. Oh, you weren't joking. It actually is season three. Yeah, it is season three. It's oh. Yeah, I've been recording seasons by giving us fun little new outfits. Oh, yeah. I remember you mentioned those and you showed me those little outfits. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like this is a... a... <laughs> a podcast that I've like heard about instead of a podcast that I'm I produce with a friend. <laughs> like right, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, you're updating me on this podcast that you are working on <laughs> and I've nothing and to do you, with. Like once a month we'll have a fun little conversation and then you'll ev- uh, occasionally hear like fun stories about this podcast. Uh, sooner or later, you know, we're going to be like at a theater and you're going to be like, "So we're going to see this podcast finally, huh?" And I'm going to be like we're doing our live show. Right <laughs> I, know, now. I know, I know. Yeah. Welcome to the beginning of the future for the Walt Disney Company, the Silver Era paving the path to a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, starting with the feature film Cinderella. But just how well paved can this road be without a great big beautiful budget? How does a company a coin flip away from bankruptcy put out a fantastic feature-length film? Do they make orthopedic soles for glass shoes? And more importantly, we ask the question, why are the Grimm brothers like that? Hi, my name is Nate Conrad. This is my friend, Abby Rose. Join us as we begin dreaming, wishing, dancing, dashing, and as always, dissecting the mouse. But yes, I wanted to tell you something uh, very fun. What's a fun thing? Uh, Spoiler alert, but starting this episode, I am going to be uh, talking about the nine old men. Yay! Mm-hmm. These are the. I figured I'd get them out of the way while they're like super active. Uh, these are the guys that are. Um, well, they're considered like the cornerstones of Disney animation. They're the the ones that Walt always turned to when he needed a a problem solved, and okay. usually a problem solved was animating something. I see. I see. Mm-hmm. But uh, of those nine men. Uh, one of them was particularly involved in this film, which is called... Cinderella 3. Here we go. A Twist in Time. Nailed it. <laughs> First try. Uh, so we skipped over seasons 4 through 12. Um, okay. Um, but yeah, so we, ta- we, we watched Cinderella, which was such a breath of fresh air, leaving the package film era behind us. Finally, and going back to normal films, um, mm-hmm. it was quite satisfying. Um, I'm I, as much as I liked to double up Buttercup. I am very glad we do no longer have to double up Buttercup. Yeah, I really hated it. <laughs> it mm. was sucking my soul out. Um, but fortunately, now we can go back to the one film an episode and there are more enjoyable films before oh i did want to say before i get started on the plot outline i wanted to give a shout out to dr mcmacken for sending me this video 
um, on recycled animation and like parallels between characters because he he sent that to me and it showed some stuff from Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland and a few other things. So thank you, Dr. McMacken. And yeah, thanks. Shouts for... out to Dr. McMackey. Yeah, sure. Um, and thanks for listening whenever you finally do do catch up <laughs> and listen to this episode like next year. Thank you. You're a very, very nice, respectable person. I love you. I think he actually um, got voted like the most like friendly or the most like, like personable, um, like professor or something. Nice. Recently, which is which is kind of cool. So, yay. Um, but, but yes. Yes. So I shall outline the plot. Once upon a time. An ornate storybook in a sea of crushed velvet opens to reveal the story of Cinderella. Welcome to probably France in the 17th century, (laughs) where our tale begins with Daddy remarrying to give little Cindy a mom to replace her dead one. Yeah, as one does. It's like, you know, whenever your kid's goldfish dies and you just get him a new one and name it the same thing. Yeah, okay. Um, so, anyway, they welcome evil Angela Lansbury into life at their petite chateau, (laughs) along with her two, and this is a direct quote from the movie, her two awkward daughters. (laughs) Of all the adjectives that could have been used to describe the culmination of their faults, adjectives like selfish, rude, wicked, graceless, they settled on awkward, (laughs) and I love them for it. Probably one of the funniest villain motivations I've ever heard. Basically, my awkward daughters can't find good husbands unless I squander my second dead husband's fortune and enslave his only child. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, like I, I spent all my money making my daughters less awkward. So I married this other guy to spend all his money to make my daughters less awkward, and they're worse than ever. And I was gonna say, it still didn't work. It's cause the money Still didn't work. Because the money's the problem. Um, okay. Tragic backstory aside, now we skip to somewhere in Cinderella's teens as she's woken up in the morning by some birds getting directly in her face and pulling on her hair. How she doesn't smack them on instinct is a question for the ages. Once woken up, Cindy serenades all the little birds and mice infesting her room with a song about dreams and wishes, a song which they all stop to listen to with happy, spellbound expressions. Emphasis on spellbound. Cough, cough. Oh. Crackpot theory. Oh, you think there's some magic going on Well, here. I don't know. So, <laughs> these mice and birds, by the way, are all wearing tiny clothing assigned based on gender. Hats and shirts mm-hmm. for the boys while the girls get kerchiefs and dresses. As one does. Because, yeah, sure, Cinderella, it was crucial to teach your devoted animal servants about differences in gendered clothing. Those are definitely hours of your precious and apparently limited free time that were well spent. Uh, so a dream is a wish your heart makes which i don't know about you but my heart has made some pretty bizarre wishes in the past um it's also you know yeah like we've had some strange dreams and i like my best friend growing up would always tell me about their dreams and they were freaking insane i I mean (laughs) i don't know i don't know what kind of wishes they were having but yeah, I I remember one particular wish that I was having. Um, actually, no, this isn't quite as funny because it actually sounds badass. 
But uh, I, when I was younger, I had this recurring dream where I was like Jack Skellington standing on a mountain fighting uh, monsters with a, uh, a sword made of a spinal column. I would absolutely, my heart would absolutely wish for that, okay? Right? So that's why it's not funny to think of it as a weird wish, because it's just like something that everybody wants. Yeah. yeah. You don't know you want it until you hear somebody else wants it, and then you're like, oh, that please. Yeah. Which, actually, now that I think about it, we never do get to hear what her wish was. Like, she never tells us. We assume that it's true love and the prince and all that, but it could be literally anything. I don't know. It could have been for some nice orthopedic shoes. Yeah. Could have been for Lucifer to go missing one day. I don't know. Could have been for her stepmother to marry a new stepfather and for that stepfather to be really nice to her. Yeah. Could be, as a previous dream my mom told me she had in the past, uh, could be... Some some owls wearing blue jeans. <laughs> Ooh. Could be okay, literally anything. That. Yeah. I changed my mind on being Jack Skellington. I want I want to see some owls wearing blue jeans. Yeah, me too. So anyway, it's also a very Freudian concept to receive from a Disney film. <laughs> but apparently Cindy's wishful dreams are pleasant enough to get her through 14 hours of manual labor a day because she heads down to feed the yard critters and get breakfast up to her step shitsters and step monster. <laughs> 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 On the way, she stops at the mousetrap to liberate the newest addition to her rodent roster. A portly little guy she names Octavius, Gus for short. Mm-hmm. Before starting on her chores, she instructs a clever little mouse named Jacques to show Gus how things work around these parts. Some Tom and show him the ropes. Show him the ropes, you know. Some Tom and Jerry foolishness ensues between the two mice and step monsters' cat Lucifer. Side note: Of course, his name is Lucifer. Of course. And Cindy secures her spot as the queen of shade as she bitches about her stepfamily all throughout the scene. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things, like how how they they put her over in the intro as she remains sweet and gentle and docile. And then to all the mice, it's like, you aren't going to believe the audacity of these bitches. I, and then <laughs> she like threatens a, a cat with physical violence. And yeah, she is buck wild. I love her. Uh, so on her way upstairs to deliver breakfast, she loses her shoe on the stairs. Adorable bit of foreshadowing there. Uh-huh. Then receives her daily dose of verbal abuse from the stepmonster and goes about her day. Sweeping shot of the kingdom, and now we're brought to the castle, just in time to witness the head of state throwing a temper tantrum, because he's lonely, <laughs> and his son hasn't given him any grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one, one could wonder why he doesn't just take in a bunch of orphans to foster if he really does want to spend time with children, but hey... Let's not worry about it. The king has to be a big baby for plot things to happen. <laughs> uh, speaking of plot things, the king's need for grandbabies inspires him to throw a last-minute ball for that very night, inviting all the eligible ladies in the kingdom to welcome the prince home and flutter their eyelashes and stuff. Uh, the prince doesn't know about this beforehand, by the way, which honestly makes me feel really bad for him, because if you think about it, this is basically like if you spent an entire day of driving home from college and arrive to discover your parents are throwing you a surprise party with a bunch of single people from your hometown. Oof. So, not fun. 
you mean uh, uh, the nightmare, which is the wish your heart makes? <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah, what's the opposite of wish? The, the nightmare, a nightmare is a curse your heart makes. Yes. Is a wish a cur- and a curse an opposite? Um, maybe like, because you want, you wish something, you want something, but then not want, so maybe like a fear? I don't know, whatever. Um, so it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> the moral of the story is it's a goddamn nightmare. Yes, absolute nightmare. Uh, so anyway, they send out the invitations and Cindy's household receives one. Cindy realizes she's eligible to attend, but they predictably pile her with a ridiculous amount of chores to prevent her from going. Unbeknownst to Cindy, her little animal friends get to work fixing up her mom's old dress into something more fashionable for the ball. This is ludicrously dangerous work for these little critters, and I refuse to believe there were no mice casualties in the making of that dress. Or, at the very least, a few sewing-related injuries. Yeah, this is this is where they uh, they had to establish uh, mouse OSHA. <laughs> exactly, exactly. OSHA with with how many freaking mice she has in her employment, they have to have some sort of infrastructure, or some sort of got to have at least union rep. Yeah, it's Jacques. What if that's Jacques? Yeah, he's, yes. he's, the, he's the union rep. He's the he's the local. Uh, he's the local head. Mm-hmm. He is. So, despite the probable loss of rodent life and the ingenuity they put into making Cindy's dress, it's quickly ripped to tatters by her stepfamily in a scene that I wish I could make a joke about, but makes me genuinely furious every time I watch it, because, like, what the hell? Like, dude, dude, evil, freaking evil. Like, it makes me so mad. It's so awful. It it literally inspired me to think, um, you know what would be a really good idea? What? <clears throat> what? A sort of, like, spin-off, right? Where um, the stepsisters go to the ball, and they come home from the ball, and suddenly the house is all different. It's got all these traps, like Saw, or The Collector, or Home Alone, and it's because, like, the mice are like, you oh. know what? <laughs> We're fed up with the way that you've been you've been treating Cinderella. Um, it's revenge time, and that that movie is going to be called The Mouse Trap. Oh, star- starring Nathan Lane as Drizella. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and that same that same uh, actress who always plays one of the stepsisters. I don't remember what her name is, but there's one woman. There's one actress who, in pretty much every single modern live action adaptation of Cinderella, she has played that the same stepsister every single time. Oh my god. Like by and that choice. That one is Drizella. That one is Drizella. So Nathan Lane has to be Anastasia. Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, she yeah. like and it wasn't just like typecasting, you know, she doesn't have any say. No, she specifically like sought out these roles, which is incredible. I I love it. Didn't she say in an interview that she used to have ugly stepsister uh, birthday parties with her family? Yes, I think I think she, yeah, she did mention that. I love. Yes. That. I wish I could remember. It's right on the tip of my tongue. I'm only. Uh, you know what? I'm only a little bit better than uh, Tig Notaro, and Tig Notaro literally had a segment called "Under a Rock," where <laughs> where she would, you know, meet celebrities who she had no idea who they were. Yeah. Well, at least she was meeting celebrities. Well, she is a celebrity. Um, so, okay, so let's 
Come back to me, Nate. Come back to me. I'm back here. All right. Welcome back. So, Stepmonster and co. leave for the ball. Cindy's understandably distressed and flees to the garden to go cry face down on a concrete bench because, sure, that's the most comfortable place to bury your face into. Mm -hmm. Enter the bippity-boppity badass bitch herself. (laughs) (laughs) Cindy somehow knows this kind, portly lady is her fairy godmother, and they waste no time in pimping her ride and doing stuff to some critters to give her a sweet set of wheels to take to the party. I... (laughs) I love and also hate how you described that because it's accurate. <laughs> Doing stuff to some critters. Yeah. Indubitably. So as a final touch, Cindy herself gets glammed up, complete with glass slippers that can't possibly be comfortable unless there's some magical fix, like glass insoles or something. Anyway. Dr. Wizard Shoals. Dr. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, Cindy heads to the ball after being told to be back before midnight. Our heroine arrives, receives some major side-eye by the guards on the stairs, and is immediately whisked away by the sleep-deprived but infatuated prince to spend the night dancing, strolling in the garden, and whatever else you do at a ball. I envision it's kind of like like homecoming or something, where it's like the the joy of going and the excitement of going is getting ready and like eating beforehand. <laughs> Probably, yeah. And then when we actually get there, you're like, what do we even, like, I guess we either dance with each other or we, like, stand on the outskirts and talk. And then... Yeah, I feel like um, high school dances probably had a lot more novelty um, back before there were uh, video games. Yeah. We're going to go down to the sock hop and we're all going to hang out versus I'm going to play as... Uh, Ryu, and you're going to play as Ken, and we're just going <laughs> to whack at each other for 17 hours straight. Yeah, those kids these days, yeah, they those, just don't understand. Darn... Abby, I have a confession to make. I've never played I've never played fighting games. I've never been good at them. I sometimes play them, but they don't interest me as much. So I'm very. <laughs> uh, at the end of the night, as promised, the clock strikes midnight and Cindy hoofs it out of the palace to get away before the enchantment wears off, leaving a glass shoe behind on the stairs. <clears throat> the king's aide sends mounted armed militia. Let me say that again. Mounted armed militia after this poor girl for reasons that remain beyond my understanding and they pass right by as a deglammed cindy makes her way back home with her deglammed critters like what mounted armed what were they gonna do when they like if they caught her what was the protocol when they find were they told hey this will be our future queen and so we need to freaking ride her down with mounted, basically the f- freaking evil human kings from, uh, like, the Lord of the Rings. They basically yeah, stick those yeah. after her. They, 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 they hook up a whole team of headless horsemen. Yes! And say, get them! They're like, they were like faceless shadows that were outlined in red. I mean, it was... <laughs> Full-on, like, headless horseman, like, coloration. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Utterly wild. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you the reason. What was the reason? For some reason. For some reason. Sure. <laughs> For some reason. Yeah. Like, and why were they so ready? Like, I, 
I don't even know. They're just sitting there chomping at the bit. Like, they're the guards specifically in reserve if somebody tries to leave the king's party early. Because you've seen the way he (laughs) freaks out about not having grandkids, okay? Somebody somebody leaves his party early, decides they don't want to hang out with him. Oh, you're partying in the dungeon, buddy. It's like a... You know what it reminded me of? Actually, I just realized it now. It reminds me of the, um... The the rangers from Elf, the Central Park Rangers. Yes, the Central Park Rangers. (laughs) Totally. Come all the way out of left field. But maybe they're so mad. Ooh, I just found a bonus crackpot theory. They're it's it's a similar thing. The reason why they're so merciless is because similar to how Santa put the Central Park Rangers on the naughty list in Elf, the fairy godmother, um, maybe like did something to them or like refused to like they maybe used to be animals and so she turned them into humans and then she refused to change them back or something and so they're super salty like i was just thinking i was just thinking like the king never invites them to a party because they always got to be on guard so that's why they're super pissed well they would they would have to be super pissed at cinderella specifically because if they're super pissed at the king they wouldn't even bother finding cinderella you know no they're just pissed at anybody who goes to a party yeah apparently so anyway so that that just made me laugh because it's never commented on how it's like (laughs) they send basically like seal team six after this like 16 year old girl wearing one shoe like (laughs) what is the thought process i don't yeah whatever it's it's hilarious and the rest of the movie is like so chill and then that one part you're like whoa (laughs) you're you catch a glimpse to like the darker side of of probably france in the 17th century 17th yeah yeah (laughs) so uh all right so after that the prince announces that the girl who the glass slipper belongs to is his true love (laughs) and vows that he will maui her if he if they ever meet again Hearing this, the king sends his aide out to try the shoe on the foot of every eligible lady in the kingdom. Logical. After a night of feet, <laughs> he finally <laughs> arrives at our petite chateau, where Stepmonster has locked Cindy in her room to prevent her from trying on the shoe. She Can I, can I just say real quick? Yeah. Uh <laughs> A Night of Feet is the Quentin Tarantino movie that they refuse to produce. <laughs> he he, he uh, produces it under his own label, like his own uh, <laughs> Night of Feet. It's a different. It's a different. It's a different name too. He's Tintin Quarantino. Stop. Um, <laughs> so, yes, she escapes with the help of animal friends, and when the glass slipper is shattered in front of her by her step monster. Cindy is cool as a cucumber and pulls the shoe's twin out of her apron. It fits her size four feet. There is much rejoicing and they live happily ever after until the sequels. Yay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I say that sounding sarcastically, but it, compared to like some stuff that we've seen so far, it is an absolutely great story. It is. Yes. Compared to the, the dumpster fires that we've seen thus far, it is it is masterful cinema. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I want to say like you know it's it's hard to beat the because they didn't have too much of a story mm-hmm. in the um, package film era, but they did have some pretty good characters. Yes, but this one is held together by some really good characters as well. Um, so speaking of characters, 
Yeah, speaking of characters. Tell me the my things. Third, my third attempt at the segue. Tell me the things about the people. Well, I'm, I'm not going to start with people. I'm going to start with uh, birds, actually. Birds are people, too. Birds are people, too. That's right. We respect you, Pearl from Steven Universe. They're peep, 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 peep. Oh, oh, oh aren't you funny? <laughs> I'm upset. I'm, I'm upset at that. No, Good. no. The, Good. the podcast is officially over. This is the end of it. Sorry, I know that was a really cheap pun. Oh, my God. Mm. Do you have one more in your system? I feel like if I do any more, I'll have to wing it at that point, and it wouldn't be very good. I am literally about to fly off the handle. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I, Birds. I don't care if feather or not you like it. I'm going to keep doing it. That one was kind of a stretch. Feather and weather? Are you kidding? I, I I feel like we 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 had a we we had a good r- rapport going for a while. I don't know. You know, I I I think it's just because it didn't fit into a single word. Mm-hmm. Ah, Fe- but feather and weather are both single words. No, no, because. No, no, I kn- I know, but <laughs> I'm more, I'm more mad that <laughs> you don't accept my feather pun. Well, I needed I needed to. I needed to you not needed... accept it so I could give a reason to not accept it so that I could say beak us. Okay. It's, I don't know. I don't know about that. Hey, I'm just winging it that. here. I already used that one. <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll segue into the birds then. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. That's where your talent lies. I, can we? <laughs> This is no longer a Disney podcast. This is a bird pun exchange podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. Welcome to our podcast within a podcast. Bird puns are us. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right. Okay. Anyway, go okay. on. Please, please do. Birds. Birds. They are nature's perfect alarm clock and general assistant. They seem to have a, a common character trait of having a little trouble lifting something that they absolutely should not be able to lift in the per- first place. <laughs> But by working together like good little comrades, they can do anything. Lifting a sponge, lifting a dog, <laughs> smash the bourgeoisie. You know, they, Why are they from because Russia? Because they got those little... Huh? Why are they from Russia? Well, because they got those little uh, those little kerchiefs, like little babushkas. Ah, uh, yes. They're little, little babushkas. Yeah. And they work together in a union. Yes. Okay. Cinderella uh, is the one that they are the alarm clock for, by the way. Okay. Uh, she's a sweet little girl who never did anything to anybody. Very prone to losing parents, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she just wants everyone to get along and be nice, despite how nobody is ever trying to get along and be nice with her. Yeah. Remarkable houseworker with incredible balance, carrying a tray on her head, which is probably what contributed to her ever-so-captivating ballroom dancing skills. I like that. I like that detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, she... Uh, has friends in birds and mice, uh, starting with Jacques, seemingly the de facto leader of the mice, a wacky little dude who talks mostly in baby talk, uh, clearly the smartest mouse, does the most talking, comes up with the most plans, realizes how utterly awful Cinderella's sisters are being right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he introduces us to Octavius, but for short, 
we'll call him Gus. Uh, new kid on the block, still getting used to the ropes, learning to talk and walk like a real city boy. Kind of a moron. <laughs> But part of me still wonders what would have happened if he hadn't been told to be afraid of Lucifer from the get-go. Would he just be gobbled up, or would he get up to some Tom and Jerry-style antics? You know, he's so ready to kick some ass. It's true. It's true. But he did, like, did very nearly get eaten by Lucifer, like, twice. It's true. And a bunch of chickens. And a bunch of chickens. Freaking murderous, horrible chickens. That scene was ten seconds away from an actual death of a mouse. Yes. Like... If you own chickens, or if you know somebody who owns chickens, um, just tell your friends what a nightmare chickens are. Yes. Yes. Uh, moving on from the chickens, who were a special little bonus character there, <laughs> um, we have Bruno, full-time dog, part-time footman, has to learn his lesson Full-time to dog, mean... part-time footman, that also applies to Quentin Tarantino. God! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, sorry. I mean, Taron Quintino. Taron Quintino. Yes, that's that's the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, um, Bruno has to learn his lesson to not be mean to the cat and try to get along. Only to have to learn his lesson that if someone is committed to being a bastard, then you have no obligation to get along with them. And you have an obligation to push them out of a nine story window. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of people who get pushed out of nine-story windows and are committed to being a bastard, uh, we have Lucifer the Cat, uh, who is, you know when you meet somebody who doesn't like cats? They describe this exact cat as the example of all cats. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Actively malicious, causes problems on purpose, um, no redeeming qualities. Nope. Uh, as it stands, we're left with a just totally irredeemable jack wagon. Yeah. Speaking of irredeemable jack wagons, by the way, we are moving on to Lucifer's owner, the Lady Tremaine. Mm. The HBIC. Head bouffant in charge. <laughs> her hair is that big to hold all of her mean and nasty thoughts. Uh, she was rich. Wasted all her money, married a rich dude, he died, wasted all his money, and there's no telling where it goes other than into that nightmare updo. She is diabolical, she is scheming, and she is more than capable of figuring out the true identity of the mystery girl. Uh, But somehow in the moment she wasn't smart enough to realize that breaking one slipper wouldn't preclude the possibility of the mystery girl actually having the other slipper. I don't know. I'll allow it. I think that's not... It wouldn't necessarily be a cognitive yeah. stretch it, in the moment of, like, panic of, like, I locked her in, but now she's suddenly free, you know? I guess. I mean, life's coming at her fast right now. Yeah. I'm... I'm you know, to, like, half an hour ago, she figures out that Cinderella was at the ball and locks her in a room. Uh, Ten minutes... Not not even ten minutes, like one minute ago, she finds out that Cinderella is no longer locked in her room and is coming down to try on the slipper. She's like, I gotta act quick. Yeah. I gotta I gotta secure the future for my friggin' ugly daughters. I'm sorry, awkward daughters. I'm sorry, idiot daughters. I'm sorry, <laughs> awful daughters. Where did I where did I leave off? Uh head bouffant charge. 
Head Buffon in charge, the mother of uh, the ugly stepsisters or the awkward stepsisters. We'll, we'll call them awkward stepsisters. Yeah, I like that. Because ugly is a social construct. You're all beautiful. Yes, indeed. Drizella is the first awkward stepsister, though. Uh, <clears throat> I got a little I got a little ditty for you. She loves singing, but can't hold a refrain, and absolutely loves to complain. It's the one that vaguely reminds me of Ethel from Archie Comics. <laughs> she and her sister are both wicked, vicious, and malicious, awkward, vain, and a real pain. Yeah! Yeah! And her sister is Anastasia. Uh, she hates singing and mice and being nice... Wicked stepsister number two, the one with the most personality, and whose voice reminds me an awful lot of Joan Rivers. <laughs> Give it up for <laughs> the awkward stepsisters. That's like. Oh my game. god! I can't believe I'm finally. I I can't do a Joan Rivers impression. Can you? Uh, I probably could if I looked her up right now, but I'm not going to do that right now. All right. So Our, after moving along, yes, we've got uh, the king. Now, I just want to say, this is what built like a Casey looks like when you're only four foot three. Uh, If they did a a new live action, uh, they should probably cast John Silver for the role. He's a he's a short wrestler. This boy, that bit was a lot funnier in my head. You know, but I have to shoehorn a wrestling reference in there somewhere. Yes, this is true. Moving on. That's, that's, uh, I it's just a very funny that... joke to the people who are listening to this and know the reference and watch wrestling. They're like, whoa! Mm. No, no. They're, even they're going to be like, eh, he kind of forced that one. Uh, okay, that's fine. But if if it's the people I'm thinking about, they're going to be like, yeah, John Silver! Because everybody loves John Silver. The king. This man comes in every color that is not a normal human flesh tone. <laughs> He's anything from violet to magenta to fuchsia to scarlet to pink. True. And either way, he's a little too invested in getting his son laid. Ah. He's so obsessed with doing adorable grandpa stuff that he's ready to take a man's life if he can't do adorable grandpa stuff. See, it's it's odd and, and funny, but it's also like great because if you think about it that's kind of just how monarchies be you know (laughs) like that's just it really is it do be how monarchies operate (laughs) yeah it's just like you're going to get laid or else the throne will die yeah it's it's quite shakespearean and then uh his son is like father it's france the throne's gonna die anyways Mm, yeah we're we're a tiny kingdom that later became france or belgium or whatever something somewhere something, to someone something somewhere to someone for some reason for for money and land and speaking of money uh let's talk about the guy who does not get paid enough for his job the grand duke uh he is the one who if he can't get the prince laid his life is on the line indeed um his job includes being chased around by the king with a sword and watching some dude jam a shoe on every maid in the kingdom. Speaking of that guy, uh, <laughs> we have the footman, the one-toothed wonder of this movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, we got one. His, his job is to jam a shoe on every maid in the kingdom. And it is actually a early voice acting credit 
for Tintin Quarantine. I knew you were gonna. I knew it. I knew <laughs> it. I'm like I'm like I could make a Quentin Tarantino reference like joke right now, but I know it's coming. A night of feet. A night of feet. What a wonderful Ariel's quest for toes coming soon. <sighs> Horrible. Ah, uh, let's let's move away from the foot. <laughs> we we and could the feet men. We could link. Try to link as many Disney movies as we can to feet. <laughs> can we not though? I mean, there's there's already two, and that's two too many. Um, it's uh, which is not very many, but it's weird that it happened twice. <laughs> yes. Uh. Yep. All right. Oh my god. Go on. How many nickels? How many nickels do we get from foot references? Shut up. Stop talking about the Footman. Stop talking about okay. Taron Quentino. I'll, I'll talk about the girl mice then. Okay. You remember how smart I said Jacques was? Mm -hmm. The girl mice are even smarter. Yes, they are. I'll list you some reasons. One, they can read. Two, they can sew with enough skill to impress my mom, mind you. Oh. Uh, three, they can work together in groups of more than four. Uh, four, they speak perfect English as opposed to mousy baby talk. And five... They never, ever, ever go anywhere near Lucifer, sending the boy mice to deal with that. And actually, if you think about it, when we were saying before, joking about how the, the mice have unionized, Jacques mm -hmm. is not the mice, he, he's not the union rep. It's actually that one girl mouse who, like, yeah. who she, she calls the shots for everyone. That is, she's 100% the actual leader of the group. Like. Like, maybe Jacques is, like, the union face, but make no mistake, the chair is the girl mouse. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're coming up on the last two characters, finally. I know I've been rambling. It's all good. Uh, we've got the fairy godmother, an incredibly powerful force of magic, despite looking like a lunch lady in a onesie. <laughs> Aww. Uh, yeah, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. I don't mean that in a negative way. Like, she's adorable. Yeah. She looks like she's gonna yeah. help you at Joanne's. She's gonna she get really you some, does some great craft supplies. She looks like if you show up at her house on Halloween, she's got full sized candy bars. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, and she spins a jaunty little rhyme as she transmogrifies flesh, fruit, and fabric alike. And then we never see her again. Goodbye. Goodbye. Prince Charming. We have gone full Clark Kent. We've dropped the Ellen entirely. <laughs> and uh, yet, I've never seen a man look so bored so often in my life. Because <laughs> he's exhausted. I know it's probably because he's exhausted. He's so tired. And that's why when he's greeting ladies at the ball, he's bored. Mm -hmm. When he's doing the waltz with the love of his life, he's bored. <laughs> When he's realizing that she's the love of his life, when she didn't even know he was the prince, he's bored. <laughs> when he's watching her get away at the stroke of midnight, he's bored. The dude is zonked out of his mind. He is Less indeed. than ten lines of dialogue in the whole film. We love him. We love we him. We love though. him. He doesn't say much, but he doesn't need to. Yep. A man, yeah, he's mean, a man of a few words and fewer actions. <laughs> When he when he was when he when they were coming up with his character, uh, they dropped the Ellen entirely. So when they were coming up with his lines, that's why they weren't degenerous. Oh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> funny. 
Oh, is that what you were it's, doing? Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, you, you didn't think my joke was funny? My comedy? I was just winging it. You're definitely a f- funny dude. So, that's everything I have for characters. Yay, now I know who I watched. <laughs> you do, but who were they based on? Well, I am qualified to tell you. I should hope so. All right, so let's... That's why I pay your paycheck. My paycheck of zero dollars and zero cents. Well, you already had zero cents. Blah! Hey. Blah, hey. Zing! That was a Joan Rivers joke. Yes. So, um... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, source material. Yay! Ethically sourced Source. material. Organically farmed, mm-hmm. uh, harvested. Mm-hmm. Cage-free. Uh, source. Source material. Mm-hmm. Free range source material. So, my research for this mostly came from the wiki pages for the film, the original story, and a few other odds and ends, as well as an NPR article by Linda Holmes called A Girl, A Shoe, A Prince, The Endlessly Evolving Cinderella. I'm going to plug these into the credits at the end. Okay, sounds good. Actually, can I sprint to the bathroom really quickly? Yes. I'm so sorry. I need to pee desperately, and I'm like, I want to be able to actually, like, do source material justice, so I'll be right back. No problem. We're making great time, by the way. Yay! Good. Abby had a pee break. So my research for this mostly came from the Wikipedia pages for the film, the original story, and a few other odds and ends, as well as an NPR article by Linda Holmes called A Girl, A Shoe, A Prince, The Endlessly Evolving Cinderella. Um, So Mm -hmm. the story of Cinderella is thousands of years old, with hundreds of different variants found globally and throughout history. It's, among folklorists, it's kind of a... um, a theme or like a widely acknowledged thing that Cinderella is like one of the most widely variable stories. I mean, there's so many variations. It's crazy. Um, I think somebody even wrote a book called like 365 Cinderella or something like that, where it's like over 300 different versions of the Cinderella story. A cinder. You could tell a different Cinderella story as a bedtime story to your kid. Every single day of the year. Yes. Which is pretty insane. I mean, so, some oh. of them you probably did, wouldn't want to tell your kid. Because <laughs> well, there's some, not. there's some, well, we'll get into it. <laughs> um, mm. There's some, some cuckoo banana pants ones. Cuckoo. Cuckoo. So, yes, but it is super old. Kind of like the Jack Tales. So, uh, though the stories details, sometimes very wildly, the core concept that links them together is always a rags-to-riches theme, with a girl in low-class squalor who overcomes her oppression to improve her station through marriage to a man of high social status. I don't need to tell you how iconic and globally recognizable Cinderella is, but I do like how Linda Holmes puts it when she says, all it takes is a girl and a dress and a shoe. People get it. Yeah. Which I'm like, it's, yeah. You know? It's kind of like doing, um, it's kind of like doing casual cosplay. Yeah, people, you just, you need those certain elements and then people get it. Yeah, like you get the wig and you get like maybe two or three accessories and easily recognizable. 
All it takes is a bucket and the number 413. People get it. Oh, I'm, <laughs> you've, you've activated my kill code. <laughs> uh, yes. Now I, now I have to go hunt down a clown boy in Massachusetts. Uh-oh. So, um, anyway, <laughs> Homestuck references aside, mm. the earliest version of this story, Cinderella, not Homestuck, is... <laughs> Stop. <laughs> the earliest known version of Homestuck. Oh, man. Okay, anyway. So, the earliest version of Cinderella um, is Rhodopis, written by the Greek historian Strabo, somewhere between 7 BC and 24 AD. Now, Rhodopis is a story about an, an enslaved Greek girl, she's a, she's a Greek courtesan, who marries the king of Egypt. Uh, and the inspiration... Like the the figure who is said to have inspired that story actually goes back to around 600 BC, so it's even older, you know, the, the inspiration. But Yeesh. yeah, but this story, it's Strabo's version, is right around 7 BC. So in Rhodopis, a Greek courtesan is bathing one day when an eagle swoops down and steals one of her sandals. It carries the shoe to the Egyptian court and drops it in the lap of the king, who admires the shoe's beautiful shape and is curious about how it could have fallen on him out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Jokes about king. Jokes about uh, admiring beautiful shoes aside, uh, he searches all over for the wearer of the shoe, finds our Greek courtesan Rhodopis or Rhodopis, and they get married and live happily ever after. By the way, I wonder if you could guess what color that freaking shoe is. I'll give you one guess. Shut up. I will not. No. What what color? If there's one color I, that you could that I'm going to guess a color, but I I just want to get out of the way that I refuse to believe that the rabbit hole goes this deep. Oh, I you better I, believe it. What color? Tell me. Is it a red shoe? Yes, sir, it is. Son of a you bitch. You win the prize. It's freaking... <sighs> not alive. It goes all the way to ancient Egypt. Bro. Bro. We're only on season three, apparently, according to you. How many red shoes are there? Apparently, more and more. I Red shoes. Freaking red shoes, bro. Freaking red shoes, bro. Hell yeah. Hell yes. I was so happy when I read that in the article. I'm like, is this real? Is this... Man, yes. The ancient Lubatines as foretold in the prophecy. If a dream really is a wish your heart makes, then I should be dreaming about red shoes every single night. Because, like, that is my favorite thing. They're haunting us. I love it. I love it. It's a sweet dream and a beautiful nightmare. So... Sweet, sweet dreams are made of shoes. Directed <laughs> by Quentin Tarantino. Damn it! Yep. Uh, we need a tally. We need like a drinking game. Um, all right. Ding. So that's that's this episode's drinking game. Every time we make a Quentin Tarantino joke, drink. But you need to drink it from like a shoe or like a like like, like a beer stein in the shape of a boot. Isn't that a thing? You've got to you've got to get the beer fest das boot yes, and drink it from that. Exactly. That's his. That's actually his, his favorite um, cup to drink out of. 
Oh, <laughs> that's a low-hanging fruit, but yeah. Uh, okay. It is indeed. All right, so similar to Jack and the Beanstalk, <laughs> Cinderella's folktale prominence has led it to be cataloged in the ATU Index, which is basically a huge database of folklore themes. Cindy's classification is tail type 510A, persecuted heroine. Um, now, I think there's a tail type 510B that is a similar, like, other Cinderella variants are classified as that. And I think it's like, mm-hmm. that's like whenever the antagonist is, I don't remember. I don't, it, it, there's a little bit of a difference, but the <laughs> traditional, like, Cinderella that we're talking about is 510A. So, the dis. I love how efficiently classify these are i know it's it's so cool i if i would have known that like being a folklorist is like a thing that you could be in life i probably would have studied to be a folklorist the disney version is adapted from the 1697 story of cendrian by french author charles perrault uh, full title is cendrian eux la petite pantoufle de verre which means cinderella or the little glass slipper Peralt's version is by far the most widely recognized and well-known Cinderella story. There is a Grimm Brothers version that appears a couple centuries later, but it doesn't resemble the Disney story nearly as much, so it's clear they didn't use that as a reference, which is understandable because it's pretty pretty (laughs) PG-13. How drastic of a difference are we talking about here? Well, I will I will describe it in, in just a little bit so you can decide for yourself. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, so Perrault added new elements to the fairy tale, like the pumpkin coach, the fairy godmother, and the idea of glass slippers, which is why, you know, it's so widely recognizable is his version, because mm-hmm. it's like, that's, yeah, those are all his inventions. Mm-hmm. So... I actually read a translation of Peralt's version, and there are a few things that surprised me. The first is that her father isn't dead in that. He actually doesn't Hmm. die when she's a little girl. He's still kicking around when all this stuff goes down. But he just does whatever his second wife tells him (laughs) and doesn't stop them from treating his daughter like dryer lint. Ah. Yeah. In fact, the narrator says that Cinderella doesn't try to ask her dad for help because she knows he's just going to yell at her for it. Hey, real talk. Yeah. I liked him better when he was dead. Uh, same here. <laughs> better yeah. better dead, better die a, a hero than live long enough to see yourself become browbeaten by the villain. <laughs> better off dead, starring John Cusack. Mm-hmm. So the second surprising thing in this version is that, as far as I can tell, the fairy godmother is literally just Cinderella's actual godmother who lives with them in their house. (laughs) She just so happens to also be a fairy on a totally unrelated note. So I guess she's just kicking around the house, living with them, you know, as, you know, unmarried female relatives do. And then whenever she sees Cinderella wants to go to the ball, she's basically like, oh, okay, well, come to my room and I'm going to do some stuff to some lizards <laughs> and, great. and you'll, you'll be able to go. It'll be great. Don't sweat it. Doing stuff to critters. Yep. Universal. Exactly. But this time it's lizards. Oh, ooh. Um, which, I like lizards. Yeah. Which actually, now that you think about it, that means that Meg K- Kabot, Kabot, Meg Kabot's L- Cabot? Cabot, Cabbage. Is it Cabot or Kabot? I don't know. Well, uh, Meg Cabot or Kbot, uh, let us know when you sponsor us. When you, sp- okay, because <laughs> that's how sponsoring works. So Ella Enchanted, her book Ella Enchanted, actually has it right with the godmother who is just 
like a normal godmother, but she also is a fairy. She's not just like this magical, oh, here I am now. It's like she actually lives with them, which I just thought was interesting. So the third surprising- Never read Ella Enchanted. It's good. I like it. I like her other book that she did in the same universe more. There, she did one called The Fairest. Yes, I think so. Ferris. And it's Ferris Bueller. Um, no. The Ferris? It's it's called Ferris and it happens in the neighboring kingdom. And I actually like it way more than Ella Enchanted. Maybe it's just because I've seen Ella Enchanted way too many times, like the movie before I read the book. But the book Ferris is, I love it. I love it so much. It's so good. It's like probably one of my favorite okay. books. I have to look into that. Yes. And I didn't even realize that it was a in like an adaptation of Snow White until I like thought about it. I got like three quarters of the way through. Normally I can pick it up on it like immediately. Like, oh yeah, okay, I can see these themes and whatever. But that, it was such a unique, it was such its own thing and so unique mm-hmm. and like original and such a fresh and like captivating universe that like, first of all, I didn't even realized that it was part of the Ella Enchanted universe until the very end when they mentioned Ella Afrel. But I also didn't realize that it was supposed to be like a Snow White adaptation until like she literally like bites an apple and things happen. And it's like, whoa, wait, this is supposed to be Snow White. Holy crap, that's so cool. So anyway, it's very, very good. Highly recommend it. Learn something new every read. Mm-hmm. So the third surprising, <laughs> that aside, the third surprising thing is that in Peralt's version, the stepsisters aren't huge, big, fat assholes. Uh, in the movie, there are these huge, dim-witted antagonists who rip up Stingy's dress and are super jealous and mean-spirited towards her, like never even once nice to her. Um, but in Peralt's story, they're just kind of spoiled and vaguely douchey towards her, you know? Like at the ball, yeah. Cindy, in the story at the ball, Eve, Cindy even goes over and sits next to her sisters and shares the expensive treats the prince gave her with them. Um, now that's played kind of like she's poking fun at them since they don't recognize her and they think that she's this beautiful foreign princess. But the point is, it's never really anything outright malicious. Um, and in fact, at the yeah. end, when she's revealed to be the owner of the glass slipper and ends up marrying the prince, the two sisters beg her for forgiveness for treating her crappily, and she forgives them and has the two of them move into the palace with her and get married to fine noblemen of their own. Oh, nice. Yeah. So they're really not, nice. like, super villainous. I just think it's interesting that the main thing Cinderella has to fight against in the original story was just getting there and looking the part. It was society. Mm. Cinderella says, we live in a society. No. <laughs> um, God. Also, Cinderella Just... doesn't have animal friends in this. Uh, mice are still turned into horses, a rat into a coachman, and lizards into footmen, but they're not otherwise mentioned in the story. Uh, also, hmm. her name, Cinderella, comes from how she huddles in a corner of the fireplace for warmth, getting all grimy and covered in cinders. Because of this, they initially call her Cinderwench, but the younger stepsister is said to be nicer than the older one, so she convinces them to revise the name to Cinderella. Oh, oh. I... See, at the risk of going off on another uh, tangent about a book, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that that reminds me of the thing that always, because um, I, I read, and I'm pretty sure you also read, um, uh, Cinder? Yeah, the Lunar Chronicles. Mar- Marissa Mayer? Yes, I think it's Marissa Mayer. Yeah. Uh, she, and it always, I always liked how, like, one of the stepsisters was 
actually nice to Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Well, not Cinderella. Cinder. Cinder. Um, it was always... So, I, yeah, that's yeah. that's where that comes yeah, from. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and then there was other... Um, <laughs> to reference a third book, uh, there was a, a book... I don't remember what, what her name... Maybe Al- Alex Flynn? I, I don't remember. Um, the author of Beastly, which mm-hmm. actually is a good book, even though I don't think the film was very good. The book actually was... was way better i've heard i've heard the movie is pretty terrible yeah i think it was pretty bad but um she does a uh, i think the author's a she she does a book about like it's like a cinderella adaptation but she does it in a way that like the stepsister is like kind of sympathetic like it's so good um and it completely kind of flips the narrative on the head and makes cinderella almost kind of the antagonist which huh. is really interesting. Um, but <laughs> And actually, the reason why I even bring up a third book is because, I mean, look at how much variation. It's it's really a testament to how varied and how, like, you know, wide-reaching the story of Cinderella is. Because, you know, just sitting down and talking about it here... We can come we up come with up several with, of those 365 adaptations. Yeah, we have easily come up with at least three additional adaptations that are not even a part of the original tale. Like, these are additional kind of fresh adaptations rather than versions. So um, it's it's pretty mind-boggling because, I mean, obviously a lot of these famous tales, you know, Little Mermaid, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Cinderella... Um, they have variations and they're pretty well known, but I think it's the thing that I'm trying to get at here is it's hard to fully understand the like massive reach of a story like this. And the fact that a story like this, of like a a girl kind of like that rags to riches story, that persecuted heroine story had massive global and historical appeal throughout you know thousands of years it's it's so interesting it's kind of like the the, (laughs) to wax philosophical the you know the the human experience kind of uh, everybody everybody put under uh wants to be uh, lifted up Mm -hmm. especially in in the female like whenever you're a woman um especially back then because it's like you have no other you're one shot at becoming like you know safe and comfortable and like kind of achieving happily ever after is by marrying somebody rich but that can't happen unless there's something magical that occurs that they somehow see you in a different light they see you as higher in station than you really are like it's it's it does some really interesting psychological things Mm. to look at the impact cinderella has as opposed to like you know, Snow White, where yeah, it's just kind of like she's story of girl, st- story of girl. Things happen to her, and she dies, and then comes back. Yeah. So this is this is story of girl, active participant. Things happen to her. Yeah, and it's way more like kind of symbolic, I think. Yeah. Um, than Snow White would be. It it means more. Yeah. It, it means. Yeah. And and Art. and it could be it's kind of chicken egg situation. It could be that it meant that it means more and it's more deep and varied because 
there are so many versions or be, or there could be so many versions because it's such a variable like theme and message that it can be like turned into so many different things mm. based on you know it's like how how what's the recipe for getting out of squalor and crappy situations in you know china versus in like um you know thailand versus in france versus in russia you know it's like there's so many different and it's cha- it changes yeah. each time based on how does how does each culture interpret this yeah this character in this situation yeah do things like are things you know minorly crappy for her like in Peralt's version or are things did things like straight up real time suck for her like in the grim version um, speaking of the grim version oh he 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 oh i'm excited but i'm also i'm also unhappy because it's the grim version evil chuckle um just a cheeky a cheeky little childhood drama <laughs> yes instead of doing a a little bit of massive racism we're doing a little bit of major childhood trauma just just a cheeky touch just just a touch so <laughs> in case you were wondering the grim version is indeed straight up wacko <laughs> mm, cuckoo bananas uh there's no fairy godmother in this but there is a tree that grows from her mom's grave that she prays to and gets her fancy goods that way excuse me uh a tree. let's let's go over that a little bit i didn't put it in my notes but yeah there's a tree grows from from her mom's grave she prays to it and there's a bird in it and it flies down and gives her her fancy dresses and stuff <laughs> would you like to know where the tree came from i would love to know where the tree came from. i'm glad you asked uh because it, it didn't just spontaneously... There's there's an origin to this tree beyond, like, it grew out of her mother's grave, I'm assuming. There is an origin, but it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, <laughs> it's it's an explanation that doesn't make any sense. So that's that's fun. Um, when fun. she was little, she and her, her step-shitsters, which, indeed, in this story, they are step-shitsters, uh, her dad goes on a trip and asks each of the three what they want from the trip, the other two say, we want, you know, gemstones and dresses and stuff. And Buy me more jewelry! Yeah, <laughs> they're like six. Um, yeah. And Cinderella says, I want the first, like, I think it's like, I want the first twig that knocks your hat off on the trip there. Like, while you're on riding horseback on the way there. She wants the first, like, branch or twig that knocks his hat off and it falls to the ground to be fair that's kind of a very that's a very weird little girl request it is but like where did it where did that come from like characters in fairy tales aren't people (laughs) like they have to it has to like symbolize something or like there has to be some sort of logic you would you one would assume you know it can't be just oh she's just a weird little girl it's like who told you? Who told you to do that? And then, so he brings it back. It's like a hazel branch. And what does she do? She sticks it into her mom's grave. A branch, by the way. Not a pine cone. Mm-hmm. Not anything that actually has seeds to grow, from from which to grow. 
But she plants this thing in her mom's grave, this like twig, and then it grows into a tree and she prays to it and it gives her her dresses and jewels and stuff. Okay, so (laughs) her dad is alive in the Grimm version as well as the Peralt version, but unlike Peralt's version where he's just browbeaten and dominated by his second wife, in this one, he seems to be just as cruel to Cindy as the rest of them. A real, you know. Oh, hey, I really liked it better when this guy was dead. I mean, like, yeah. So he's just, he's straight up just as cruel to her as the rest of them. So the stepsisters are closer to the Disney version, as I said before, because they treat her Mm -hmm. like poo-poo and they actively make messes for her to have to clean up. But (laughs) things get balls to the wall insane (laughs) when Mm -hmm. they each cut off parts of their feet to get the glass slipper to fit them. Mm-hmm. One cuts off her toes, and then mm. when that doesn't work, when she's found out, the other cuts off part of her heel. Now, <sighs> that's pretty wackadoo, right? Like that's that would be that's a little wackadoo. If you are a person whose future wife will be determined by whether or not a shoe fits them, mm-hmm. one would assume that while this potential mate is putting on the shoe you would be looking at the shoe for you know to see if it fits cuts bruises blood or just to see if it fits because it's supposed to fit all right so um the funniest part in all this is that the prince doesn't notice either time it happens And in fact, Cinderella's magical bird friend has to tell him both times to look at the the <laughs> bloody shoe and the mangled foot before he realizes what's happened. It happens twice. Twice. First in a row. First bitch cuts off her toes and stuffs her foot in the shoe and he's like, "All right, let's go." And the bird's like, "Wait, wait, dude, look." And, you know, he looks down. You know, I thought it was kind of weird she didn't have any toes. Yeah, you know, looks down at the freaking, you know, pooling blood or whatever. Then he's like, oh, you lied to me. And then the second stepshitster is like, all right, well, I'm going to cut off part of my heel so that I can, I guess, I don't know, have better chances, whatever. So she... Listen, you you obviously notice the toes are missing, okay? The heel, not so I much. The so. heel's behind the foot. I guess so. The toes are the real moneymakers of the foot. Um, so go. she cuts off her heel, stuffs it in the shoe, and gets in the carriage with the prince, and it's on the way to the palace that the bird is like, hey, um, it happened again. <laughs> like... <laughs> She got even further, though. Yeah. Uh, so then I think he, he, like, makes her get out of the carriage and, like, walk on the shoe, and she can't because she doesn't have a heel, so. Oof. Yeah. Oof. It's, it's brutal. But I just think that's, like, the craziest part isn't that they, like, mutilated their feet in order to fit in the shoe. The craziest part is not only does the prince not notice, it happens twice. <laughs> So maybe it's like, does he really even love Cinderella to begin with if he, one, doesn't remember what she looks like, and two, doesn't even look to see if the shoe fits before he's like, all right, <laughs> pack her in, let's go. This is this is just, uh, he, listen, he still hasn't been allowed to sleep since getting home. I guess so. So he just, like, the sooner this is over with, the sooner he can get a nap. He, he 
participated in the night of feet. Mm-hmm. And by the way, um, I'm going to make a director joke, but it's not the one you're thinking no. of. Because the grim version is absolutely positively written and directed by Rob Zombie. Yes. Terrible things happen and nobody acts like a person. Yes, this is true. Yeah. And it just it makes just straight up no sense. Um, yeah, so so that was the grim version. It was indeed grim. Was now, the important thing when looking at Cinderella critically is that the prince has to be tricked into believing at first that Cinderella is of much higher social class than she is, thus making it possible for him to fall in love at first sight. Only then can the girl leave behind the shoe or other evidence that can be used to link her to her low status role at the end. Because the point is, the the point of Cinderella is that if the prince were to meet her in her low status form right off the bat, he wouldn't see her as a potential partner. It takes the enchantment and the disguise to make her look like a princess to not only make him fall for her, but also, as Linda Holmes points out, to ensure that the love will endure even when she reverts back to her lower station. So he has, he has to be so kind of enchanted and enamored by her, and she has to look so good and so amazing and be so appealing to him as this highborn person in order to make her just as appealing in her lower station. Got a, got a, got one shot at this, yes. and we've got to paint a masterpiece. Yeah, and so there has to be, in order for there to be a really good, like, in order for Cinderella to work there has to be a strong like class system and there has to be a strong sense of class boundaries where upward mobility and like class mobility is possible but very improbable and very oh. uncommon oh i see what you're getting at yeah <laughs> at- i see what you get this this wouldn't work if there wasn't a uh a class or caste system involved in the uh, culture. Yeah. As Linda Holmes hilariously points out, Cinderella wouldn't work in an egalitarian collective, <laughs> which is, is really funny. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't work in a hippie comedy. Yeah. If everyone's the same station or if it's like acceptable to like kind of move around, then Cinderella wouldn't work. So it's, it's the, the themes of Cinderella wouldn't, Endure. So I think that's really interesting. Um, But speaking of social status, something I've noticed is that in the classic Cinderella tales, Cinderella herself is almost always of noble birth to begin with. Her noble status is hidden and ignored by her family, and she's treated like a servant and abused. But in the end, she reveals herself, and there are no issues in marrying the prince because she was already part of the nobility to begin with. Um... The irony here that I'm trying to bring up is that despite being called a rags-to-riches story, as far as I can see, our classic Cinderella is actually a riches-to-rags and back-to-riches story. And, yeah, you know, that that just really intrigues me, because when we think of a Cinderella story, we imagine someone with nothing who suddenly gets everything they ever dreamed of. And it's inspiring because we think, oh, they're just like us. That means that this sort of thing can happen to anyone. So maybe I can end up like that one day. You know, what's interesting about that hmm. is that that's uh, that's the theme of Rhodopis. Yeah. Because, yeah, she was. But like, 
I highly doubt that anybody, like too many other people, know the story of Rhodopis off the top of their head. So when they hear the Cinderella story, they imagine Rhodopis, even though like the theme in the narrative has changed, where it's like you don't start out the lowest of the low, you start out high, low, then high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting too because like courtesans and like the concept of like kind of like slavery and slaves in ancient in the ancient world mm-hmm. in general it's different than what we think of as slaves and slavery nowadays um as opposed to chattel slavery yes she would be i mean she, she's kind of like a concubine which obviously is kind of that that form of slavery but um yeah but yeah it is it is interesting though because then as we go throughout history it is and and class becomes a lot more important. I mean, it already mm. was important in the ancient world, but then it became more like titles and stuff became even more important. Um, with you yeah. know varying on the culture, like a concubine comes with a certain uh, level of um, class. I want I, I hesitate to say class mobility. Um, class. I, I also hesitate to say class advantage because at the at the end of the day, you're you you are like a a piece of property, but mm-hmm. you're a pre- piece of property that has to be respected by multiple people in the kingdom. So it's like, yeah, yeah it's not ideal, it's not good, but it's also not like the end all be all of there's nothing you can do about it. Like you can still go to college, you can still yeah. like you know, right. Yeah, it's it's like it's a more attractive choice to be like a concubine or like a courtesan in like an ancient world than it would be to, you know, stay like on the farm or stay the daughter of like a a poor like merchant or something because you have sort of like this this noble protector, you know, if you get kind of bought to be somebody's personal concubine, it sucks, but it's also you're living a better life than you would otherwise um but it's different because then they include the family into it and they include kind of that suffering of like it's like the the pathos as i think you're gonna say later on it introduces that sympathy of like things suck for her like you mean things probably didn't really suck for rhodopis very much i mean it wasn't ideal but like it you know, courtesans were treated way better than like today's sex workers are. So um, it's definitely complex, but I just think it's, it was interesting because that idea of rags to riches Cinderella saying, oh, well, you know, this sort of thing can happen to anyone and maybe I can end up like that one day. It's false consciousness to the extreme because Cinderella is born a noble. She doesn't earn it through hard work and dedication. That's all I have for source material, so you are oh. more than welcome to get into it. All right, I'm going to dive right into the production notes. Okie dokie. So let's start by uh, talking turkey. And by turkey, I mean money. Uh, Walt Disney does not have any right now. Gobble, gobble. He's, he's having this minor problem where he built the most impressive animation studio in the history of the medium, and then the world decided to do a war in which he lost an insane chunk of his staff and was reduced to going into smaller production features to stay afloat. Don't you hate when that happens? Lost a lot of turkey. <laughs> yeah, lost a lot of lost a lot of bird jokes mm-hmm. here. Indeed. Uh, 
Unfortunately, these smaller features that he was uh, putting out weren't exactly raking in the dough at the time. Uh, in fact, um, the feature film division had become so large and simultaneously so unprofitable that at this time, Walt was caught in a very important split decision. Do I make a new movie or do I sell the whole entire company? Right now, he's looking at two options for movies, fully fleshed out, ready for the green light, Alice in Wonderland and Cinderella, but he's very seriously considering the idea of selling off the studio. Hmm. And it isn't until one of his animators pays him an uncommon visit to his office that he changes his mind. Enter uh, the first, um, well, technically second, because one of them was Ward Kimball, but the first in this season that I'm going to talk about of the uh, nine old men uh, Wolfgang Reithman, also known as Wooly Reithman, which is stupid because who named Wolfgang wouldn't want to be called Wolfgang? Wolfgang. That is being named after a gang of wolves. That is so That's cool. Boss. You're you're simultaneously named after a composer and a celebrity chef. <laughs> right, right. Well, the celebrity chef came a little later. Well, I'd I'd say the celebrity chef is named after a composer and an animator. Well. Wolf, Unless you, <laughs> all the same person. Wolfgang Amadeus Puck, you were named after three of the most, <laughs> three of the most inspiring men I've ever, <laughs> I've ever heard of, <laughs> ever known. Mm-hmm. Is that an old meme yet? I don't know. It's an old meme, but it checks it's out. An old, it's an oldie but a goodie. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, Wolfie was born in uh, Munich, Germany, 1909. Emigrated to the United States with his parents, spent a lot of his life obsessed with airplanes, and even went to school to be an aircraft engineer, working for an aircraft manufacturer. However, at some point he switched schools, focusing more on art than air. Now, one of his art teachers had an in with Disney, showed off his art, getting Wolf in in with the company. He was hired in 33, and he wanted to work as a watercolorist, but Walt sort of ushed him into animation, where he did indeed thrive. Worked on a lot of popular shorts like The Band Concert, Musicland, and Elmer the Elephant. We'll get into that one in a bit. <laughs> and of course, on feature films. He seemed to do a lot of unsettling and terrifying work uh, early on, since his best-known segments were um, The Slave in the Magic Mirror from Snow White. Hmm. I don't like that official don't name. don't like that name. Wait, is that supposed to be The Magic Mirror? That's The Magic Mirror's real official name, The Slave in the Magic Mirror. Bitch, that's just the magic yeah. mirror. Why does it have to be right? the slave in the magic mirror? Uh, he animated the monstro chase sequence in Pinocchio, and I don't like that mm. whale. And he animated the fight between Tyrannosaurus and Stegosaurus in the Rite of Spring, and you don't like those dinosaurs. <laughs> I certainly do now. Mm-hmm. In uh, 1942, as part of the mass exodus of talent, thanks to either war or union reasons, uh, Wooly left for war to fulfill his other lifelong dream in airplanes, joining the United States Air Force, earning the Distinguished Flying Cross, honorably discharged as a major, Major Wolfgang Reithman in 1946, just in time to rejoin the studio to animate El Gaucho Goofy's Dances and the Headless Horseman Chase in Sleepy Hollow. Hmm. Yeah. He was the one who appeared uh, unprompted in Walt's office, just out of the blue, just to say how much he really liked the storyboards on Cinderella. Now, presumably, I'm assuming this reminded Walt that there were other real people in the studio, real artists with real ambitions who really liked what they were doing and presumably wanted to press on. 
bear with me here because I'm I'm applying like my logic to Walt. Uh, selling out would mean going out on his own terms, but an, and another failure would sink the studio. But sinking the studio by putting out another film, like a creative company going out creating, is also kind of going out on your own terms. That's what I think Walt could have thought, and it's that's what I think Walt Woolley could have thought, because you know basically that's what they did. Uh, Walt spoke to the two teams working on Alice in Wonderland and Cinderella, letting them know that they were going to bring back a classic Disney tactic. Cinderella would be the next movie released, but both would continue to be in production at the same time so they could race to the finish. It seems like everything's back on track at this point, except for the turkey, the turkey made of money, the one that does not exist. Uh, Walt had to keep his costs as low as humanly possible, as low as Dumbo, lower than Dumbo, even. Fortunately, there had been a lot of work done on uh, Cinderella already in the pre-production department. Uh, he did a Cinderella cartoon at Laughogram in 22, so he had a basic structure. Uh, he knew where he wanted to go. He got a uh, story treatment and a list of gags done for a silly symphony short in uh, 1933 that never materialized. Uh, specifically because they kept adding things to it and making it a larger and larger story. It was an early candidate for the first animated feature film, uh, overshadowed, unfortunately, by uh, Snow White. Um, so, but that story treatment got handed off to Al Perkins, who uh, wouldn't finish the script, but he would later go on to write books for and with Dr. Seuss. Hmm. Um so that script got handed off to a lady named Bianca Majoli. Uh, we'll get to her later uh, because her script wasn't used either. The final script was written by two guys. One of them was named Joe Grant. And the other one was a guy that they poached from Fleischer Studios. The same guy that developed one of Betty Boop's most famous sidekicks, Coco the Clown. Uh, and his name, I shit you not, was Dick Humor. God, I love him. Dick Humor. I love that's that the, man. That's the greatest name in the world. We we love Dick Humor. We love Teehee. And we love... Oh, who else do we love? Wolfgang Amadeus Puck. We love Wolfgang Amadeus Puck. The, mm-hmm. There are a lot of great names back in the early 20th century mm-hmm. before people, like, ruined language forever. We like uh, Ub. Ub Iwerks. Ooh, Oob Iwerks. Oob. That's another really good name. That's a good name. You don't have any Oob Iwerks anymore. No. Everybody's got normal there names was, There now. was only one. He couldn't have been reproduced. Yeah. He works. He works. I works. Yeah. Yes. So the script was done by Dick Humor mm. and Joe Grant. Uh, and they had a million years of concept <laughs> Dick Humor and Joe Mama. around. Joe Mama. Yes. yes, the the creative writing dynamo duo. Um, they had all the concept art that had been kicking around since 1933. All that was left was to put it together in a satisfying way. And they achieved this with a uh, method that was new to Disney. Not totally new, but new to Disney. Um, they took actors and they had them act out the scenes. And while the actors were acting out the scenes, they shot them on film in just the way they wanted them to look. Uh, and then they took that film and they used it as a reference. It wasn't a rotoscope uh, where you trace over people's outlines like they did for Two Silhouettes and like was uh, very common for Fleischer Studios. Mm-hmm. But it was um, 
something that they weren't allowed to deviate from as a visual reference. Uh, it was their only valid interpretation. The reason for this was because in the past, animators had been allowed to go off on creative tangents, and those creative tangents would have caused scenes to be rewritten and reworked. And normally that would lead to something much more magnificent and beautiful, but it was also very expensive because you had to put more work into rewriting the story and rewriting the scene, doing new keyframes. So it was expensive and it was impossible then. Uh, another thing they had to do was forego the complex background line work that Disney was known for in older feature-length films. You remember how rich the backgrounds were in, um, oh, just Snow White, uh, Pinocchio, Fantasia even. Like, things you would notice, you'd go back and you'd notice something new that you'd never seen before, like a, like a, like a, like a wooden owl on the stairs, or... Yes. Like a like a fancy hat that's just floating down the street. Yes. Yeah, you couldn't do that anymore because it was too expensive to get all that line work done. You needed the backgrounds out now and fast. Hmm. So they went for a more streamlined style uh, based on the impressionistic influence of Mary Blair, who had become Walt's go-to for stylization ever since he lost Tyrus Wong in that tragic fired-for-no-reason accident. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, that tragic yeah. house fired for no reason. That that horrible, terrible, you know, racial bias for no reason. <laughs> Just hate when that yeah. happens. It's such such Don't a you tragedy. Hate it? Fortunately, Mary had a keen eye for color and a sharp fashion sense that gave us delightful visuals and lovely modern dresses that we see in this film. In fact, the scene where Cinderella stares from her tower out to the castle... Uh, is directly based on a self-portrait that Mary had done of her looking out into the future. And st stylistically, <laughs> you'll notice that the colors out in the distance, out near the <laughs> castle, are bright and vivid. And her tower and Cinderella's tower is dull. And they used a lot of this like color design to trick audiences into believing that the flat animation was just as stunning as uh, the depth and shade of Pinocchio and Snow White. And it was, but it, it wasn't as elaborate. And you, you got the sense that it was as elaborate. Mm -hmm. um, but this isn't the uh, Mary Blair episode. This is the... Um, Mary Blair's episode is next. We'll, we'll talk about her major influence on... Um, Alice in Wonderland next. But this episode, one. we're talking about somebody different. Whomst is it? We are. It is, uh, and I apologize, this is going to be a little bit of a downer topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about Bianca Majoli. Hmm. Vent it okay. out. Yeah, so it kind of turned out to be a little bit more of a downer than we expected. And uh, we decided to cut the whole Bianca Majoli thing. But... If you really want to hear the story of Bianca Majoli, we saved the clip, and if you ask us real nicely, we just might put it out on YouTube. So hit us up on Twitter, or Tumblr, or I don't know, whatever social media accounts we have. Just talk to us. We love you. Thank you. I love you. So now we come to the point where uh, you've got your onions, I've got my OOC. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's go back and forth. Let's bring let's bring it up.
Well, first of all, I I thought it was interesting how the Disney princesses, we've seen two, arguably three, because Johnny Appleseed could be a, a Disney princess, but we've seen two, like, kind of official Disney princesses so far, and I thought it was interesting to see how the sort of feminine ideal of, like, beauty and, and kind of fashion and femininity, you can see the the feminine ideal from each of the different ages where these movies were produced um it's reflected in each princess so like snow white since it came you know in the the late 30s and we still had some um influences from kind of the 20s kind of flapper old hollywood look uh, Snow White is heavy-lidded, pale, with blush and eyeshadow, and a very old Hollywood starlet glam. Um, and Cinderella, on the other hand, you know, coming in later, she is blonde, and she has uh, peachy golden skin, not super, super pale, um, and she has a more, like, kind of apple pie, poodle skirt, American cheerleader, like, girl-next-door look. Um, a bit more of like a, you know, like a Brady Bunch look, and little, little more of the progression into, um, you know, the post-war yeah, ideals, like kind of bronzed and, you know, makeupless, and um, furthermore, the stepmother has the old arched brows and the heavy-lidded glam that Snow White had. She resembles kind of in coloration, um, a bit of Snow White. But now, since she's older, it's cast in a negative light to contrast it against the quote-unquote updated Disney princess look that Cinderella has. Oh. So I just thought that was interesting, where it's kind of like the old look. I never, uh, I never noticed that. I never thought about that before. Yeah. yeah. How, like, That's even though Snow White is like, kind of the first Disney princess, Cinderella is seen as kind of that first iconic Disney princess. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Yeah. That's really the only onion that I have. Okay. Okay. Uh, what did you What did you think about the movie overall? Um, just in general. Overall, I liked it. I liked it a lot more than you know Snow White. It had a lot more substance. Um, it was enjoyable because there wasn't like an agenda. I didn't have to like look at these like real people contrasted against cartoon characters because sometimes you know that requires a kind of suspension of disbelief that is sometimes tiring. Yeah. Yeah, like we had realistic looking people, but they, she wasn't, she was playing off of mice, which, you know, I guess, you know, they, they can be more cartoonish looking without creating more of a dissonance. Yeah, and it can be, it's, it was nice, you know, it was really cute. There was no kind of Disney fever dream, really. Um, and No major racism. Yes, there was, there was enough room for like fun stuff and like crockpot theories and stuff in the narrative it was loose oh, yeah. enough for that but it was also tight enough that it was a story where things happen oh yeah and i've I've kept it on the down low but i got a pretty good crackpot theory yeah, this time i'm excited well uh, yeah so that that's my thought i i enjoyed it i thought it was nice um and i think the the tom and jerry stuff were definitely nest it was definitely mm. necessary like looking back even though i get mad at gus like constantly for yeah doing wrong things all the time um 
he, those parts I think needed to be in there because that was absent in Snow White. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why it was so lacking is because you didn't see the main story contrasted against like fun little offshoots. Yeah, the, the, there was an A plot in Snow White, which was, you know, Snow White. And then the B plot was, oh, evil, evil happens. Yeah. Whereas, like, A plot here is Cinderella, and B plot is, eh, funny mice do a, do a scheme. Yeah, fi- mice versus Lucifer. Um, yeah. Snow White, I think the B plot was actually uh, the dwarves physically abuse and try to murder Grumpy constantly. Yeah. So that all the dwarves versus the, the, Grumpy. The secret, the secret B-plot in Snow White being, like, the previous relationship Grumpy had with the evil queen. And how that distanced him forever from his brothers. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's all I got. So, uh, I'm gonna crack into my observations. Uh, first O in the OOC. First of all, um, yeah, I agree that Cinderella is 200% more active in her story uh, than Snow White was. Um, the good things that happened to her are mostly based on actions she has taken. Like, being nice to the mice results in the mice being nice to her. Mm-hmm. Um, j- going to the ball and spending time with a guy. Uh, not actively looking for the prince, but just spending time with him. It results in the guy being like, oh... You spend time with me just because you like me? That's nice. I guess I'll marry you forever. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, this was this was impressive for me. There was no recycled animation that I could find. Um, and I I had to double check on this. I had to double check on the uh the Disney Wiki, which uh if you don't know is a um Disney Wiki is where Disney fans go to prove they know more about Disney fans, which results in a very Mad Max Thunderdome sort of mm-hmm. environment where you're either <laughs> two two theories enter, two opinions enter, one opinion leaves. <laughs> it's it's pretty terrifying. Um, I wouldn't want to go in there. Yeah, I, 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 but I braved that wilderness to bring back confirmation that although they do recycle bits of animation within the picture, uh, all of it is original animation. Um, like they, there's nothing like when we joke about those, uh, uh, guards chasing her being like the, uh, the headless horsemen, like they're not just, you know, recycled footage of headless horsemen. It's totally original. It's cool. Which uh, brings me into my opinion that it was um, visually a little bit less impressive than the older Disney films, but more impressive given what there was to work with, the time and budget constraints. Um, It was more impressive given that it was all original animation. Uh, It was more impressive because it was narratively superior to the shorts and a lot of the films that we've, uh, we've seen before and it was a really great comeback for the company like i i was really impressed with this i wasn't uh like subjectively it's not like a story that resonates with me uh as well as others do and it's it's not something that i want to watch like multiple times but it was really good i really appreciated it i really enjoyed it and uh, I, if if you wanted to watch it again, I wouldn't mind, you know, sitting down watching Cinderella a couple times. 
Okay. Yeah. Which um leads me right into my crackpot theory. I'm gonna I've got a I've got a single solitary crackpot theory that I'm just gonna crack into. Okay. <clears throat> so in Cinderella, we see her interacting, of course, with the birds and the mice, dressing them up in clothes. Um and they, in return, help her clean her room. They help her build her dress. Uh, this is not normal behavior for mice and birds. And you could say that it's like, well, you know, it's because it's a cartoon. But we see a dog that acts like a dog, a horse that acts like a horse, and a cat that acts like a cat. Uh, we then see that she has a fairy godmother who just appears for whatever reason. And you could say that it's cartoon logic. But I think... And here's where the theory is, that the birds and mice are actually lesser fae, that they themselves are little fairies that she rescues from certain situations out of the goodness of her heart. And in doing so, she befriends them. They help her with her household duties, and she gives them little outfits, and she gives them little names, which gives her an amount of power over the fae by giving them names. Um... And she doesn't abuse this power. She's friends with them. And they're friends with her. And so, of course, they're going to tell the higher-ups in the fey court. You know, some fairies, some magical beings with phenomenal cosmic power to transmogrify flesh and fabric and fruit. Mm-hmm. And so, I sp- and I'm specifically saying that she befriended the lesser and greater fay of the autumn court because the autumn court in my research has yielded that they are the more powerful. They'll grant you greater gifts if you befriend Mm -hmm. them and specifically autumn, because what does uh, the fairy godmother turn into her coach? A A pumpkin. pumpkin, a pumpkin, a very symbolic of autumn, uh, sort of gourd yes. mm-hmm. that's that's very specific that's that's it's that's very quite, specific that's what makes it impressive. super crackpot thank You're you welcome um i i want to accept that theory because i like it but i have my own theory as to the origins of the mice so mm. i don't know if i can fully accept your theory but i do like it a lot I appreciate appreciation. Part- oh, I, I, can I call it partial acceptance? Sure, partial acceptance. All right. I'll take what I Ta- can get. Tacit uh, compliance. But I'm very excited. Tacit compliance with my crackpot mm-hmm. theory. Yeah, that's that sounds like how people will believe in the U.S. government. Yes, tacit compliance. So. But yeah, I'm very excited for your crackpot So my theories. crackpot theories, um, I have a few... Um, so the first crackpot theory, it's not really a crackpot theory, I just think it's kind of a theory, is that Cinderella either has one foot slightly smaller than the other, or one of her legs is slightly shorter than the other one, so that would give her a tendency to lose her shoe, because she loses her shoe, like, three different times in the film. Um, yeah. And so, I feel like that would be because one of her feet is slightly smaller, so she would always lose her shoe, or... She has like one leg slightly smaller, which means that her step, uh, like her her footstep, like 
cadence of her rhythm would be a little bit different. She's got awkward stepsisters, but she's the one with the awkward stepsister. Zing. Zing. Bada bing, bada boom. Zabazi, zabazoo. Zoot suit riot. Roll back a bottle of beer. I could do with a bottle of beer right now. All right, so my my second crackpot theory, and this is like the real, like these are real crackpot theories, uh, is that Alice Liddell is the granddaughter of Cinderella. Um, the reason why I theorize mm-hmm. about this is uh, because the footman that comes to the the estate to try on the shoe, he is dressed in like really Alice in Wonderland. Like he looks like he's from Wonderland. He's like one tooth wonder. He has like a completely different color palette, like dressed up completely differently from anyone else. He almost looks like the Mad Hatter, kind of like a younger version of the Mad Hatter. And um, hmm. he, yeah, looks completely different. And um, also, I I theorize that Cinderella, um, her own daughter. Um, you know, was raised by Cinderella to kind of Cinderella was like, okay, well, you know, you need to dream and you need to to um, you know, find wonder in the world and be creative and imaginative and whatever. But then her daughter decided to kind of go against that because she needs to be a part of the real world and she needs to be kind of a, a realist and use logic. But Alice, once she had Alice, Alice is a dreamer like her grandmom, so. Um, that leads her to Wonderland because she also has an affinity for talking to animals. And she has that sense of, you know, creativity and um, whimsy about her that allows her to find herself in Wonderland. So, yeah. Huh. That kind of, it's kind of like um, the crackpot theory on uh, Bongo Part yes. 2. Yes, yeah, where the uh bongo is the grandfather of um yogi bear yeah so yeah i think alice little's the daughter of cinderella and then um my other crackpot theory the one that goes against yours or is different from yours is that Mm -hmm. um the mice the fact that like the mice are you know, the only animals that speak and they have little clothes and they act kind of human and um, all of that jazz, and the fact that the boy mice have, they speak in that kind of mouse Latin um, slang dialect, um, caused me to theorize that the mice actually used to be human, like street kids and orphans, that the fairy godmother turns into mice and sets them loose in the house for Cinderella to find them and take care of them. Um, so I thought that maybe huh. the the boys were like street kids and orphans, kind of a la Oliver Twist, um, where they have nowhere else to go and they're devoted to Cinderella because she doesn't realize that they're they're you know they used to be little kids, but she's the only one that's keeping them from harm's way or starvation. And um, Cindy, I figured she could either know at least something is up because she seems to recognize the fairy godmother. Or she could just be clueless and takes care of them and talks to them because she's nice and there's not much else going on in her life. Um, because Gus, like whenever they find Gus in the mousetrap, 
he's a brand he's a newcomer he's a brand new mouse but hmm. whenever she holds up the shirt to put it on him he immediately raises up his arms as if he knows how to put on a oh, shirt he- and he also knows how to put up his fists yeah. and he's kind of a scrapper which could be he's fresh from kind of the streets like he's he's like this little kid who was kind of scrappy and trying to make it on the streets but then the fairy godmother you know, took him and, yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, okay, and it could be, okay. it could be that maybe, like, if they've served her, you know, and, and if they, they've been good, like, guides to her for long enough, then they can be turned back into humans. Um, or something like that. But, um, yeah. So that's that's my and actually that actually reminds me of a theory that I thought of too, um, regardless of whether or not they're actually human or magical or whatever. Um, at the end, we see the mice in the palace now, and they're dressed all fancy. Mm-hmm. So that makes me theorize that maybe this is the beginning of um, when we later see the movie The Great Mouse Detective, and there's like mouse parliament and like a mouse queen of england and like a mouse different like mouse oh. governments and and like there's a whole mouse society makes me wonder oh, since this is supposed to happen yeah. in like kind of the 16th or 1700s um maybe this is like their first establishment of mouse royals kind of and and then that and then that can spill over because that's that's um that's mouse culture moving from france to England, mm-hmm. and then mouse culture could spill over from England to America, and more of an international into society. Fightful goes west. Well, yeah, I was thinking the rescuers. Oh, the rescuers, yeah, that too. But could also be Fightful goes west. That would be the connection to the Don Bluth cinematic universe, We're creating a whole the MCU, the Mouse <laughs> Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a wicked tapestry we weave. That's a tapestry of mouse tails. Mouse tails, like T A I L S or T A L E S. Yes. Okay, I see. <laughs> I see. But yeah, so that's that's a bonus crackpot theory is that they established the first mouse mousey government. Boy, you had a lot of crackpot theories cracking into this. I have. One. I had more, but I have since given up on them because i think i told them to you before and you didn't seem too jazzed about them so i was like eh, i'll let them go getting we're getting there. there so should we get to ranking mm-hmm. i think we should get okay. to ranking do you want to go first or do you want me to go first yeah i'll okay. go first um because i i had a lot of trouble with yeah. this one let's just do top um, five like a lot by the we're just going to do the top five um and you know it's it's subject to bounce around uh, a mm-hmm. little bit but for now, all things considered, uh, my top five is going to be Bambi, Fantasia, Three Caballeros, Icky Toad, and Cinderella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I rearranged a few of them based on the strength of the stories and mm-hmm. characters. Uh, the further further I get from Make Mine Music, the more it you know sort of falls towards my lump of package mm-hmm. features. Uh, so right now, it's just outside my top five. Um, and by the way, this isn't to say I enjoy it less. Uh, by far, with two exceptions, I've enjoyed just about 
every other film, and I would recommend all of them for viewing. Um, so I just like the more I w- it's it's like when I uh, rearranged Bambi to the top. Uh, the more I watch these movies, the more I change it. The more it affects my opinion I've had on other movies I've watched. Which is the point of watching all of these. <laughs> exactly. So you, exactly. It, you, good job. You're doing the thing that we want to do. I, yeah, I'm proving my, I'm proving the yes, theory, the crackpot theory. Um. So yeah. now I will tell you my ranking. I'm okay. ready. Bambi, Cinderella, yes. Icky Toad, mm-hmm. Fun and Fancy mm-hmm. Free, Pinocchio, mm-hmm. Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's a that's a little that's a little switch around. Mm-hmm. Is it? I don't know if it is. Uh, you, you had a uh, make mine music at number five. Mm, oh, but because then, because I think Pinocchio was like number four or something, and then with Cinderella that moved that shifted them all down. Oh, I might have, I might have scooped, I might have screwed up when I rearranged your ranking all list. Good. But yeah, that's mine, and I did it, and then you did it, and we did it. We did the thing. We done it. We done it. Well, and. As we said, coming up next, uh, we're going to be doing Alice in Wonderland. Mary Blair, Mary Blair in Wonderland. Mary Blair in my heart. The, the Blair Wonderland Project. All right. So now, after all of your puns, after all of your vicious puns, I can say, get out of this house of mouse until the next time we dissect the mouse. Okay. Dissecting the Mouse would like to thank the artists and editors who have been involved. Morgan, Eric, the Cowboy, and Connor. Links to the artists and a bibliography of our sources can be found in the expanded credits. We would also like to thank the researchers, Abby and Nate. Nate would like to thank his library co-workers. As it is a review based on subjective opinion, Dissecting the Mouse is not intended to be a scholarly source. Thank you for listening. Technically, hypothetically, if you have a live branch and you have treated it with rooting powder, mm-hmm. and no, 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 this is this is this is like, bear with me. Does here. she have rooting powder? Exactly. If you have a live branch and you've treated it with rooting powder and you've done everything right and you place it in the soil with perfect conditions and you wait like fifty years, you can grow a branch from a tree. <laughs> <laughs> this this happens to her when she, the story uh starts whenever she's 50 years old. <laughs> yes. She's been growing this tree for 50 years. Oh, how I'd love to go to the ball. Yes. Uh got to love her. Dance my hip away. Cougarella. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa.